Hey, Jeff, how's it going, bud? It is going very well, but man, the news lately is just all AI all the time. It is, and I have to be honest, I feel a bit like a Luddite. I really don't understand it. <laughs> um, a lot of it's going over my head, but I'm fascinated. So I think it's great that today we have someone who's going to help us understand all of it, every single bit of it. <laughs> I completely agree. I think it's hilarious that, that you and I feel like Luddites, given that you know we tend to be more geeky than most people. Talking about generative AI, we're talking about, um, you know, just this whole idea of are photographers going to be replaced? You hear that a whole lot because you can type a sentence and get an image and sometimes a photorealistic image. And they may have even solved the problem where people have actually five fingers instead of nine or ten or thumbs coming out of weird places. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, we will get into that because we have a fantastic guest today, Mark Heaps. His official title is he is the VP of Brand and Creative at Grok, G-R-O-Q. I know Mark from the Creative Pro Week conferences. He's a Photoshop expert, Lightroom expert, just a fantastic photographer, big brain guy. So thank you, Mark, for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for uh, for having me on and happy to hopefully shed some light into the, the AI space, seeing as that's where I've been been playing for the last several years. So yeah, thanks for having me. Well, it does seem like AI has become incredibly discombobulated for a lot of people. So our job here is to try to make things simple. So we'll try to bring this down to a level that I can understand and, and <laughs> articulate. So I want to start off with a question. We're going to refer back a lot to an, a podcast episode you do with a friend of yours, and we'll put links to that in our show notes. But you did a wonderful podcast with Jesus. Um, and in that you go into great detail about your work with AI and things. There's one part of that that really rung a bell for me as a photographer. Okay. And that was when you're talking about generative AI. So we're talking about, you know, text prompted gener generative AI, creating a photograph. And the example you used was a witch with purple eyes, which mm -hmm. I thought was really great. And then you mentioned, what if I want a series of photographs, then I'm going to use the first photograph as a seed to generate the, the rest of the, the generative AI photographs. And I was like, wow, that's great because one of the things I would have trouble with in generative AI is consistency. Right. And if I can use one of my photographs as the seed, then it involves my creativity and my, my work and then uses AI as a tool to make it better. So can you drill down on that and talk about this idea of a seed image and what, what happens to make that better with AI? Yeah, so in some of the services that are out there now, right, like Stable Diffusion, Dolly, et cetera, they've had a feature for a while now where you can generate an image from a text prompt, and that's that's what they call it, is a prompt. There's actually a, a an interesting side discussion going on in Discord right now of will there one day be prompt creatives whose whole job is to be able to write very well for the AI to understand you. But the, the way that it works today is you would get an image generated and all the math that was used in the back end to generate that image, right? Um, it can assign a numerical key to that. You can think of that almost like a you know section of a Bitcoin, right? It's just a little little numerical key. And what that key does is it gives it indications of the things that you would like to retain about that first image. So that would lock down on maybe what the skin tone is, what was the hair type, what were the eyes, etc. And then you can extend over the key with new prompts. So that's really where that started is people recognized 
how do we continue for that consistency? Now, we think of that as photographers and designers, but actually the industry that's really chomping at the bit for that is cinema video, mm-hmm. right? Because if you think about generating sequences of, of CGI, you're going to want to have 30 or 60 or even more frames per second. So they need to be able to say, okay, this is the character or this is the living room or whatever the scene is of the cityscape. And then you want to be able to say, camera moving right, dollying this way, panning mm-hmm. like this, and it has to generate each of those images consistently. So you can imagine in the future this key might actually get quite long where you say there's a key for the person or the, the, the target character you're focused on, a key for the lighting schema, a key mm-hmm. for the environmental textures that are in there. And we're, we're seeing hints of this even now. Yesterday, there was the big announcement of, from Adobe about Firefly. And um, I've been in that beta. I'm, I'm playing with it right now. And there's these sort of simple user interface versions of that where they say, hey, do you want to generate with warm tones? Do you want to generate in a particular style? Those are really just keys happening in the back end. What they don't offer right now in uh, the, at least the Adobe Firefly service is the ability to upload an image and then say, hey, can you generate from there? But we know that feature is available in some of these other AI models like Stable Diffusion and Dolly. So yeah, so that's, I, I don't want to go too deep into it too soon, but that's really the idea is capturing this key which represents particular details of what's rendered. Awesome. Awesome. I think that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little so, it's it's a little confusing for folks, but uh, it's it's literally just an an ID of of what is rendered. And because if anybody's played with it, right, every time you render something, you are just going to get something completely random and completely yeah. different, right? And so right now, that all of these companies were just trying to see if they could make something that was of human quality, right? Right. And you know, much like Jeff said, well. It's human quality, except for the whole nine fingers thing. That's, <laughs> that's getting a little bit better, but, but fingers are actually one of the trickiest things for them to be able to generate with these models because it's it, in the math, when you look at the back end, it's really hard to discern. Is that a tree branch? Is it a leg, an arm? Is it, it's like, there's not a lot of detail in fingers actually. Yeah. And so it's very hard for them to work with that. I want to pick at something there that you said. One of the things I've had trouble understanding in my mind, my muddled mind, is that when an AI image, a generative AI image is being created from prompts, right? So not using a seed image or anything like that, just from prompts. Uh, if I said mountain with a l- reflection of mountains in a, in a beautiful mountain lake, that sort of thing. Is there actual extraction from real photographs that's happening in that process? Or does the AI just know... Mountains look like this. Lakes look like this. I'm spitting out magic pixels that no one else has ever made before. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely the one thing to clarify for people is it's, and I've seen a lot of strange posts and rumors about this online, and most of them have been debunked by ML engineers. (laughs) They're not extrapolating anything from anybody's images. It hasn't scraped an image from the internet real quick, done some fancy masking and, and built something for you, right? It is generating completely from scratch. However, it is generating that based on something it's been trained on. And so these data sets of of very large sets of images are are what it's trained on. And what happens in that is it breaks it down to just basic math and then some descriptors. So what happens is if, if you went into, even today before you get into AI, if you went in and searched beautiful mountain with reflection on lake in Google Images, you could find 10,000 results Easily, you could find that on Flickr. Never mind Google Images, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, 
there's enough consistency across that span of images that if you just loaded that into a training model and it looked at every bit of math of where did the contrast change, it would start learning some probabilistic information, which says, oh, there's always these types of angles and contrast lines. Oh, there's very much these colors that are often used. Okay, a reflection is this inversion of the top piece, right? Because we never, mm -hmm. how often would you find a reflection of a mountain at the top of the picture? Right. You wouldn't. So there's a lot of things that become obvious in the training data set. And then from there, it can just start hacking together what it knows is consistent. And over time, the network or what they call the parameters and weights of the AI model have gotten to a ridiculous scale. Um, the larger that that gets, the more refined and accurate the model can be. Now, the problem with that is once you get into these very large weighted models, it takes a lot of compute to be able to render those. Um, so just as an example of how fast this is changing, when I started working with AI companies about four years ago, um, we were talking about when would a model hit, you know, a billion as a parameter, right? The, the weight of math it can calculate. The llama model that got just recently released, it's smaller size is 13 billion. And so it's unbelievable. And, and the way that I like to visualize this for people that don't work in that space is just think of an Excel table, right? And going both directions, X and Y. If you said, hey, I'm filling a billion cells and now I'm filling in 13 billion cells. That's for photographers. That's no different than saying I'm going from a one megapixel camera to a 13 megapixel camera, right? Yeah. It's that much more detail that you get from the photo is the same thing for generative AI. That's how much more accurate it can be. That's, it's incredible. So, so I, just so I understand when generative AI is kicking in, it is using, um, algorithms, uh, to generate pixels based on stuff it knows from a large pool of data it's been fed. So depending on the quality of the, the garbage in is depends on, depicts what the garbage out is. Right. So who's training all these models? I mean, who's going through and saying today I'm doing mountains. <laughs> <laughs> and training that today I need to tell this AI that that's a mountain and that's a mountain and that's a mountain. So if, let me put this in a way that might make more sense in Lightroom right now. If I want Lightroom to recognize pictures of my daughter, I have to tell it that that's Claire. Right. Um, so there's somebody somewhere telling these AI models that every possible thing in the world is there. <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, oh my gosh. So, even, so, so even going back, um, gosh, when was I there? 15 years ago, maybe I worked at Google and one of my jobs was I was a, a manager that oversaw Google maps. Now okay. you think about the scale of Google maps, right? Everyone's familiar with it. So you would think there's some brilliant computer that built all of that, some system. No, I had roughly 400 people who sat around and they traced photo satellite images of where a road went. And that satellite data had the GPS coordinates of the image and anywhere they clicked, they would say, okay, that's a road. Okay, that's a stop sign. Okay, that's a bush. That's a house. And they were literally manually generating that. Now, now the good thing is wow. once you've done enough manual work, brute forcing it, as we would call it, then you can become probabilistic with software that says, okay, we've got enough data on what you've traced over to say that looks like a road. And now you're no longer brute force manually drawing it. Now you're getting things that we see every day, which is, is that a road? So the best example for society, and this was, by the way, the greatest dupe on society ever 
which was we all got convinced the Are You a Robot CAPTCHA screens was to help us with security. But what everyone just did was all of that brute force training for free where they're like, is this a traffic light? That is, that is, that is. And millions of people just trained their models for them for free. And so is this a cat? Yes, that's a cat. That's a cat. You know, okay, you just confirmed. So that was AI uh, machine learning training, right? And so there's been tons of these things where please confirm this, right? Mm -hmm. And, And that's exactly what those are. So yes, when you put in something like this is my daughter and you put a name in there. Now people in Lightroom for years have put in, you know, tags, to uh, build their libraries out in inside of Lightroom um, and catalog things accurately. That metadata, you're just adding one extra layer to that and saying, when I look at these details, please use this label. Well, imagine how finite the, that detail can get when it can recognize the shape of the person's eyes, mm-hmm. right? The shape of their face. And if you look at, there's a, a really classic model that's been around for years called YOLO, um, which, uh, isn't you only live once like the classic meme, but (laughs) it stands for you only look once. And this was an early image segmentation model that this person built. Now I think it's in like V six or seven, but it can look really at like 12 pixels and find mapping to someone's face. Because if it does the, the math on blowing that up and then interpolating it, it's got enough detail to recognize things. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it's really heavy when you're not, in it because you sort of recognize the immediate reaction for, especially photographers is the gravitas of all this. Mm-hmm. Right. But when you get down to like, okay, well, what will this matter for me? You know, I, I have all these fantasies as a photographer of like, well, what if I didn't need to do it at the create stage? What if I did it at the capture stage? I mean, I, I'm a Nikon guy. Uh, don't, don't slay me in the comments. Um, <laughs> but you know, I remember the early days of even having like a D2X and being able to, to click on a microphone and record a note with a particular mm-hmm. image with the raw data. Well, imagine now an AI model that takes an audio file, converts it to text, a text can convert it to tags. And in the AI focusing system, like on your Sony, that would be able to say, okay, this person, this text, this tag, when I open it, it already knows everything that could happen at the capture stage. But w- wouldn't we just jump that shark and go right to Lightroom knows what all these objects are and Lightroom knows what everything is um, because it's been taught. So instead of keywording, you know, and I probably should let Jeff talk about this because this is Jeff's thing. <laughs> <laughs> Keywording's a nightmare and everybody hates it. Yeah. Everybody hates it. Nobody does it. Yeah. yeah, it's it's amazing. We've all bought the tools like Photo Mechanics so that we could keyboard shortcut faster and doing all of our our keywording and our labels and our tags. But yeah, this is this is a, a really great example of where image segmentation wouldn't just build a mask, but actually would say, okay, here's all the things I see in the image. There's an inverse problem from this, by the way, though. Too many tags. Right. Imagine yeah. you take a portrait of an executive in an office and in the tag, something, you know, Jeff, you would never add would be like bookshelf in the background. You would never add that. Right. right? Window. You wouldn't put that. You would put the executive's name, the company they work for, the date which you did the shoot, you know, maybe which part of the shoot, like outfit one, outfit two, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Professional, casual, et cetera. But there's going to be all of this other identified data in the background that you would never use. But does that actually hinder 
the file or the the image in any way. Like 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 is that going to load it down so that suddenly this image when it gets to be processed somehow is is just weighted with all of this other extra information. Yeah, it's, the not, good, it's not like that, right? No, no. So the good thing okay, is good. all of this kind of metadata keyword stuff, you know, you're you're talking about kilobytes and and barely yeah. anything in there. Um okay. the good the good thing is it'll have to change how all these search engines work. So now you you actually could drill down into something more like a Google within Lightroom and say, I want to look for Jeff Carlson, quilt in background, red squares, right? And it would, boom, this would be the image that comes up that I'm seeing right now. Yeah. So yeah. that context will be really helpful for search, but it won't be quite as bulleted as as the, the keywording we see uh, that's been done for the last like two decades. Yeah. Well, and I can also see how going to what Mason said, being able to gather the stuff at the capture stage, like I can see that being good for, say, wedding photographers because these are going to be people that you've never shot before, you've never seen before. The circumstances will probably be very familiar you know, from place to place and maybe even the camera would be able to tag – you know, this is this particular barn that I've all that I've shot four other weddings at. So it knows this barn or it knows this wall, things like that. And so having that information collected translates into, you know, for the photographer, uh, I, like I don't even know how much time spent, uh, sorry, time saved by not having to do any of that which is a very cool thing, and yet still have the ability to say, oh, like, where's the picture of the bride and the mother and the little uh, pet goat that wandered in next to that one barn right as sunset hit the light, you know, and and it would just come up rather than, you know, the, the typical problem of I know something like that exists and let me scroll, 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 scroll and try to find it. Well, imagine imagine this scenario at a capture stage when you go to import, right? One of the and, – and again, I shot events and weddings for years, you know, in my 20s. Just the culling of your images, you know, mm -hmm. which ones do I keep? So what's the classic thing as you speed click through with your third cup of coffee? Whose eyes are open? Whose eyes are closed? Right. Yeah. Now, you could say, hey, AI, generate mm -hmm. eyes for me. And, you know, we're, we're well onto that path to be able to do that. But it's still – people look a little bit rendered and a, a little bit funky, right? Yeah. But imagine if the moment you put your card in, Lightroom separated them out and said, here's the images I don't think you want because the eyes are closed, and here's the ones that I do want you to keep. Yeah. You know, it, you, you could literally define awkward expressions, and it would be able to actually call yeah. those out. Non-traditional crops, right? So that's one of the areas that I'm, I'm most fascinated about in the debate of will this replace human beings in creative roles? Well, mm -hmm. it can only know what you trained it on. And so there becomes a, um, a certain state of creativity, which is, well, as long as you're shooting to a textbook format that there's millions of examples of that it could be trained on, that's what it can generate. So now your challenge truly becomes, how do you get creative? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. How do you do what Joe McNally and Joel Grimes and, you know, David Hobby and all these guys who are amazing photographers that, that I've met and worked with who I've seen them on site go, Oh, you know, it'd be really cool and funky here. And they have some weird abstract idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now the, the stakes on that become higher. If you're going to differentiate, you've got to be beyond what's, what's abundant to train. Right. Um, that's, that's a super fascinating thing for me. 
Yeah. Well, and to, to follow on that a little bit, like, like some of that stuff exists. Like there's a, there's mm-hmm. a program called Aftershoot and mm-hmm. uh, I want to say Neuralpix, I think it's the right. Um, and like they're geared, especially for wedding photographers or event photographers, and it will do that. It will go through and it will mm-hmm. uh, either you know rate higher images that have eyes open or mm-hmm. people smiling or couples together and things that are in focus, which, I, I mean, honestly – two years ago sounded like the, like amazing things. <laughs> and now, at least in, in that sphere, that's, that's really table stakes. Right. Like that, that seems really basic now. Mm-hmm. And, and now it, it's a matter of refining that to, so that, you know, okay, yes, there's a picture where uh, the bride has her eyes closed, but it's an amazing picture and it's emotive. So the happy accident, the happy accident or, right. you know, the example I always use, uh, we have a picture of my wife and her father on our wedding day. And mm. she has her eyes closed and like her head leaning against his mm-hmm. shoulder. And it, like it's perfect. And yet some you know, of these utilities would be like, nope, eyes are closed. That's, you know, right. reject that or mark it as one star or whatever. That's right. And, you know, and, and, and that's where you as the photographer gets to go in and be like, no, 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 because I know that this is a real thing and I'm not a machine and I can see right. that this is a, a better image. But it's not long and it's probably even like happening now where it will be able to say, oh, but based on the angle of her head, that's actually probably a good shot even though the eyes aren't open and it, it, and it puts it in whatever bucket or color label or whatever so that when you're reviewing those – you say, oh, that, that is a great shot. I didn't even know that it was there. And it right. surfaces that and becomes useful. What if the AI or machine learning in this case would, would go to the point where instead of assessing an image for its quality, it simply assesses the image for its, its uh, quantity. So how many open eyes are in this image? You got a group of 25 people at a wedding uh, and you take 30 shots of that, you know, that group shot, you take 30 frames of that within those 30 frames, everybody is going to have at least one image where their eyes are open. And so what I see really being a strength of AI is like, Hey, I want to have a final product where everybody's eyes are open, assess this, this package, you know, I'm going to select 12 images. I want you to assess them and assemble uh, a final product. That's what I wanted. And so I see a photographer thinking that way in the capture side, like, Hey, you know, I'm not going to sweat this group to make sure everybody's got their eyes open at the same time. I'm just going to take a whole series of photographs so that I can assemble the proper photo at the end. Not generating anything artificial. It's just accumulating the proper data. I, as a landscape photographer, I could even see that. Like, hey, I'm going to take this landscape shot that I really love, but it, the light isn't the best. So I'm going to photograph this in different exposures, going to try different things, and then I want to alter the mood later in the create side with uh, with AI. Well, and, and that's something that, especially with the group, like you can absolutely do that in Photoshop or, or you know, like, like, like the, that is a capability. The question is, can I just say, AI, make this happen? Exactly. That's what I'm yeah. saying. I don't want to sit there and I've done this where you, you, you mask you're out masking. somebody's eyes and you move them over and you're like, okay, now I've got to rotate them three <laughs> degrees and make the left one a little bit larger, you know, and that sort of thing. It's just, yeah. it's mind numbing. And so having AI and, you know, Mark, you said this in the, in the uh, podcast you did with Jesus, having AI as a tool, a creative tool is where, I, where I really think this is going for photographers. It's not replacing us. It's, yeah. 
it's a tool we can use to get rid of the mistakes that we couldn't control, the things we can't control when we're, when we're out making photos. That's right. Yeah. I, it's funny. I, I remember as a kid watching the Jetsons and you know, George Jetson's job was literally sitting in a factory and, and he's pushing one button. Yeah. Right. And they would measure like, you know, well, how many times did you get that sprocket, that spacely sprocket pressed today? Well, think about how many clicks and levers and, and sliders and things you have to pull today to do an image stack. Mm-hmm. You shoot 60 images, you know, and you say, okay, I want to make this an HDR. There's, there's steps. They're not as many as it used to be. But ultimately what we're trying to get to is where the AI does the laborious part of all of right. this. You know, Jesus right. has a great tutorial on his YouTube channel where he took like eight pictures at the Louvre from outside and he wanted all the people gone. And there's an algorithm that allows you to look at those images in a stack and it automatically calculates the difference. Uh, it's like a difference blend mode algorithm. Yep. That difference builds a mask and says, okay, fill these in with areas that it doesn't have that. And it's very fast, but that still takes 10, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. But if you can say, here's eight images remove all people and that's it one click george jetson yeah that's that's a great potential for the future right and you have that in your head when you capture those frames that's right right you do this is this is the thing you know i get into discussions with students of mine or, or other photographers i'm talking to and they're like but that's not really photography i'm like Bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> you made 20 images to make one. That's a hard work. That's hard working photography. You're using AI to artfully combine those images into something that's what you envision. Yeah. Isn't that our job as photographers is to convey with our photograph what we envision when we push the button? So this, you know, this is the, the never ending debate between are you a craft person? You know, you're working the craft. Are you an image maker? Where is the line drawn on that? The classic story recently about the guy winning the art contest at his like state art fair or whatever it was using, using generative AI image making. But the category was literally digital imaging. And yeah. so it doesn't get and much more great picture and it's a great image and it, and it doesn't get much more digital than that. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah you're always going to get into the debate of like, what is the craft versus the result versus a number of things, you know, in, in my mind, that's got to come down to, to each person and what they feel they're committed to, uh, you know, where do they draw their balance? But for me personally, you know, when I first started getting into this, I, I started as a film photographer when I was a kid, my grandmother gave me like literally built me a dark room when I was like six or seven and got me into, got me into shooting, you know, black and white film, et cetera. First time I saw the markup from Ansel Adams, and like the retouching that was done, Rubilith, exposures, all of that. I'm like, okay, so here's a person who said, I went to this place, probably went there multiple times, fell in love with it and said, I know what I want people to feel from what I felt when I was there. Right. I want them to feel that. Right. And so that removes you from the ego of like, recognize me being in the right place in the right time as a, as a blessing from God. And instead saying, I want to bring this back for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Now, th- again, this is where AI, I find the transition is fascinating because anybody will be able to make a romantic image. We see it now with like, with Photoshop and sky replace, right? Mm-hmm. Like I- I'm at the point now where I'm starting to see images enough on the internet where I'm like, Oh, that's sky number seven. 
You know, it's, it's like knowing the brush textures in Adobe Illustrator. I look at a menu and I'm like, oh, that's the ink brush. I know that one. You know, it's, I'm starting to pick out the skies. Anyone's going to be able to make that romantic image. So what happens when everybody can feel great about every image all the time? What happens when every image can look extremely professional? You know, there used to be a barrier as a hobbyist when you said, well, I would love to get that shallow depth of field in that portrait but I don't want to spend that much money on a 200 millimeter F 2.8. Right. But now I can get that effect with my phone Uh and that's getting better. Right. Is it, is it glass quality? No. Would anybody in the general consumer public know that that was glass or not? Probably not. Right. So are you trying to appeal to the audience or are you trying to have receive respect from your peers and your compatriots, right? Like I've, I've often said, like, I don't care what other photographers think of my work. I'm not trying to impress them. Right. I'm, I, I'm at a point in my life where I don't care about portfolios and things like that. Sounds arrogant, but I'm like, I really don't care about what those folks think anymore. But when I can make that mom, that's a friend of my wife's cry over a shot I got of her kid. I love that. Yeah, I love that. And if that means editing it, if that means using my phone to so I can get lower on the ground because I'm old and my back hurts or, you know, whatever it takes. That's what I go for. So everyone has to define where they're trying to derive value from this exercise that is photography. But for me, it's it's what does it do for the people looking at it? Well, I think that's. We're going off on a bit of a tangent here, but it does tie back into the utility of AI. That's right. Um, yeah. What does it enable, right? Exactly. What, you know, as a creator, as a creative, what is it allowing me to do that I couldn't do before? Or I couldn't do before without way more effort than I really wanted to put into it. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, 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 the right. the best right. way to put it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I could sit and mask something for days, but I don't enjoy that part of the process. No. I just want the results. I've envisioned a result. I want that result. Mm -hmm. And now I know that I can just click on the subject and it it masks it really well. And I'm like, gosh, I don't miss those days where I I had to do it the hard way. No. It doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah. Uh, Well, and and what you just said, I envisioned this result. And what I find invigorating and fascinating about all this is that what you envision is broader than what you could have envisioned 10 years ago, five years ago, because knowing what your tools can do will help you from capture to everything. I've used this a million times at the most basic level. You know that your camera will pick up shadow detail in the foreground so you don't blow out a sky. Well, what if you know that I can have all of the the trash on the grass automatically removed so I don't have to go ask five people to go pick it all up for this image because I only have 15 minutes at this location and it's been moved to here. Like that sort of thing that could involve so many complications. You just know, all right, even now I can go through and I can, you know, use content aware fill and, and, and get rid of those. But maybe I, all I have to do is say – this is actually one of the things that I think is super interesting about the, the merging of, of the AI technologies and, and current um, is being able to, to replace content-aware fill with generative AI so that rather than going in and saying, all right, I need to go get my healing tool and I need to click all the little dots where there's little pieces of paper on the ground, maybe I just 
you know, swipe over that and say, replace this grass with green grass. And, you know, like, like it doesn't have to be I'm replacing a sky with something more dramatic. It doesn't have to be anything like that. It can but just Jeff, be. Couldn't it, couldn't it be as simple as saying pick up the trash? I mean, you don't have to right. tell it. You, you just say this, you know, there's trash yeah. in this picture Rem- and I don't remove want it trash anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could well, that, that gets that yeah. gets into some gray area because now you're removing that one cousin at the wedding shot. That everyone thinks is trash. And you don't want to. You don't want to get into some of that stuff. Like, is it a white trash wedding? I don't know. You know, no. I not I, that I trash. The other one on the other side the of the family. Other trash. That's right. That's right. The other side of the family. No, I think uh, that's right. You know, generative AI and small applications like that are exciting because. I can't tell you how many times I've seen someone retouch an image, right? And, and this is how I started my career, right? I was a senior image guy at Apple. I retouched all those flavored iMac images you saw at the store and the mall and everything. I can walk up to an image in an ad, you know, on the side of a bus shelter or whatever and be like, right there. They cloned that bit of grass from right there because I yep. just see it. And mm-hmm. granted, most people are never going to do that, right? Which is why I hate when I see the Google Pixel ads right now. And they're like, look, you just draw around the person and it cuts them out of the background. I'm like, have you seen it do <laughs> yeah. that? Yeah. It's crap. It's terrible. <laughs> it's better than, than having, I guess, the original person. And it's better than someone needing to buy Photoshop and dive in and learn the tools and all the proper techniques. Absolutely. It gets 50%, 60% of the way there very easily. But generative AI means that you're not doing collection from within the image bounds, but saying probabilistically, what is this area? Oh, this looks kind of like grass, right? Because there's um, some form of noise ratio of shades of green that I can identify this as grass. If I pan out and look at the whole image, what do the tags say? Person, park, field, green grass, blue sky. Okay, that is definitely grass. Okay, generate grass it'll be able to do that, right? And in fact, on Firefly right now, they only have three different services that are available in the beta, but there's about 12 more. And one of the ones that's in there that says they're exploring is this idea to be able to paint areas that you want to mask or replace out, very broad strokes approach, but what you replace that with would be generative. And so this this is where we're going to see some of the shift in the editing practices for people. There was a video that I saw by um, – I can't remember the, the guy's name, but it, it's Pix Imperfect is his YouTube channel. Oh, yeah. Um, we'll, 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 we'll put a link in the show notes where he, he needed to replace something and basically did a combination of, of Photoshop and then bringing in uh, – taking an image and then, and then sending that to, I think, Dolly. And so that it was just replacing that one area uh, with – I think it was like a bridge that didn't have any construction on it or something like that because it the AI knew this particular bridge and it knew like this particular angle and could then build it from, you know, whatever thousands well, the classic of would images. Be, the classic would be, you know, I, and I've, I've built these tutorials myself. I think they're on the Adobe channel of like turning an image from day to night, right? Mm-hmm. That's actually yeah. not that hard if you think about it tonally and color-wise and saturation-wise and contrast-wise. But what happens at night? The lights turn on on the bridge, right? Now you got to go back and manually paint all those in. Well, now there's beams of light that get rendered. Well, now there's atmosphere. Now there's all these other things. So that, that's a pain in the butt, right? And that's where retouchers make a lot of really good money. And they are a specialized, skilled craft technician 
who does that, who takes the time to think about things a certain way. And look, that this is going to affect their particular segment of the market and how they make money as a retoucher. But when you start talking about needing to do this like Jesus and Lisa Carney and some of these others who work on images that are the size of a building, and again, that's a very small set of people that make images. But when you start talking about working into those resolutions and beyond at edit scale, you know, you're still going to need those people. So that's where for me, this goes back from being grandiose to, oh, it's a tool. We're going to leverage it as a tool, right? Um, because they're going to need to process those small bits when you're talking about that scale. Let's let's talk a little bit about the the reality versus the 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 dream of of AI. In the podcast with Jesus, you talked about compute and and computational energy use and just computational speeds. I'm sort of dazzled by the things that my Lightroom can and Photoshop can do on my my MacBook Pro. <laughs> You know, I'm, uh, and I think I've got a pretty hot machine. But when you start talking about full resolution AI generation, you know, 61 megapixel, 48 megapixel, whatever we want to talk about, even 4K, even as low as 4K, it, it kind of blew my mind in that podcast when you mentioned that we're still a ways off from being able to have that kind of computing power at scale. That's hang right. On, hang on, hang on, hang on. You're saying all this computing power thing, but. It just magically happens. Like you just type something and then you wait a, like a, a couple minutes and it just happens. So what are you even talking yeah, about? Way, way out in Eastern Oregon, there's a server farm just pumping heat into the air trying to make that happen. Yeah, actually, uh, there, was a, there was a fascinating article on Forbes yesterday about the new data center that Microsoft is building, which will be, I think it was Microsoft, will be supporting one of their new software suites. And the reason they're building the data center where they are, and it was somewhere in the, the Pacific Northwest region, but it was, I think they had hydroelectricity and a very abundant amount of it. And they basically said, okay, if we look at the nation, where is the greenest energy source we have? And it was right next to this hydro plant. And they said, okay, we're just going to slap a data center right there, right next to it. Because now we can just pull energy from that and we're not doing it, it you know, we're offsetting our carbon footprint. Um, look, it is a massive amount of power to provide these services. Um, data centers are absolutely going to be uh, probably the largest carbon footprint on global impact in the next 10 years for sure. And every wow. chip company that we speak to, they're all trying to address one big issue. How do we keep the performance we've generated while getting the power down as right. a footprint? You know, once you get to the point where you're getting results in real time, you know, I, I click this, it generates the image, it's there, I can use it. That's fast enough. I don't need to be faster than that. But when you talk about how much power it takes to generate that, that's that's where this this becomes a major concern. So for example, when Dali first came out and we were speaking to some of the engineers, we said, so what are you learning? And jokingly, one of the engineers said, well, we learned that a lot of 16 year olds really like to generate porn images. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because of course they are. Yeah. Right. Right. But they're also using tons of electricity to generate that. Right. And so you have to put some kind of regulation on that, not just because it's like maybe ethically or morally in alignment with your values, but also, hey, should we have a hole in the ozone because 16-year-olds want to see naked people? Probably right. not, Yeah. right? Should we have <laughs> cities having blackouts because they can't generate enough electricity? Probably not. And so the compute side of it is intense. And anytime you scale up resolution, anytime you 
start trying to get to production grade, the scale of compute it requires to do that increases in orders of magnitude. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so to to put this in perspective, because when we're talking about scale, like if you generate something from one of these generative AI services, you're getting it's like what it's like. 512 pixels square or something something like that, roughly? The early models, um, once you started getting beyond what they call toy size models, the default for like Dolly, for example, Stable Diffusion in the early days was it would generate a 512 pixel image. Now we're okay. seeing them get up to like 1024, things like that. But are you competing with a Hasselblad or even like a Sony or Fuji at 24 to 48 megapixels? Not even close. The, the marriage will come when we generate the image. There's enough detail in that that we can then use a different AI model to then resample that into a new resolution. Right. And that's just, gotcha. that's just taking the process into a series of steps, you know, which is what we used to all do in the old school days when we had our Sony Mavicas with 1.4 megapixel camera on a floppy disk, and then we stretched it yeah. in Photoshop. But that, again, you're adding another step in the process. You're adding way more compute you're increasing right. the electrical usage. I definitely want, want to get into that because the, the scaling is fascinating. But real quick, um, like, is it possible to, to give an estimate of, like, to generate that one image, like, how, how, much, how many resources are being used or how much electricity is being used for me to generate one image? Like, is that even realistic? Like, or... You know, what's the scale? Like if I spend all day, let's say I have an idea and it's going to take me like, you know, 15 or 20 iterations to get to the image that I like, you know, because it's it's creating new things. You're saying, all right, pick this one and iterate on that. Have I just burned through like a typical household energy consumption for a month in doing that or a week or – can it even be segmented out like that? I'm trying to get a, a sense of scale when we're talking about the energy being used. Yeah, so it's hard to quantify because there's so many variables in it. When you start actually looking at the end-to-end process of the full ecosystem, mm-hmm. um, you know that that gets a little bit complicated. But I can tell you, for example, one of the models that we run at work, and we were doing a partnership with a government lab, if you wanted to run their model for, let's say, 10 minutes, right, and it runs on eight chips, that amount of power is probably the equivalent of maybe a quarter of a gallon of gas, right, if you're burning that in like a traditional petroleum plant, right? Mm-hmm. So in essence, you should be able to think of a data center as like a power plant. As much as it's generating, that's how much is actually being stripped out there. They're very close in parity if you look at the larger data centers that are out there in the world today. So these are the things that we just don't feel are real when you think about digital media, right? Like imagine just leaving your lights on in your house all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. do you feel the impact of that other than seeing a couple of cents go up on your bill per month? No. But imagine if everybody in a city the size of Austin said we're all going to leave our lights on all the time. Right. Right. Well, now we're doing a massive drain. So to give you some sense of what that scale could be, when Dali first came out, I think they had a little over a million images generated in the first 24 hours they made it available to the public. So that day, 
I'm just, you know, spitballing and ballparking here, but that's, that's probably the equivalent of a couple of SUVs out on the road. Mm-hmm. And that was yeah. the first day. By the end of the first week, they were getting around 13 million a day. Right. So it's the scale of this is, is really, really huge. Yeah. Um, and this is also where other companies are struggling. I mean, even Adobe, when they announced Firefly, they said, hey, you may see the service delayed. You may even see it go down because they, they were expecting the scale of adoption of this to be so fast. Yeah. So when you hear people, you know, I don't want to go on a political side channel, but like when you hear people talking about, hey, we have to think about the future and people start talking about electric cars. Yeah, that's a that's a big deal, but that's nothing in comparison to how automated the world is becoming with AI. So mm-hmm. if you bring this back to photography, we've all complained when our batteries drain too fast. Well, <laughs> if you imagine all of these AI models running in your camera to help you with focus, <laughs> to run with everything, right? That's going to drain your battery even faster. And so there's all kinds of ripple effects from that. So power consumption is a huge concern in the compute side of AI. Yeah, it's got to be... Um... There's got to be somebody at Adobe right now just just banging their head against their monitor because you launch something like Firefly and you know that that technology is going to bleed into all their other products eventually, right? So $9.99 a month for Lightroom and a terabyte of storage is now absurdly low if people are using AI-generative, cloud-based AI-generative power, and that's all on the Adobe you know price tag. You know, that's going to cost us. You know, those prices are going to go up and that's going to cost us. And so now might be a good time in the podcast to start moving towards the crystal ball end of things and start looking over the horizon. How do we resolve this? How do we uh, how do we take our dreams and AI's reality right now, the aspirations of AI and marry it to just practical physics and finance? (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, the exciting areas of this are material sciences, you know, Intel, NVIDIA, Grok, others, you know, they're all really passionate about um, how do we use less silicon? How do we get down to where we're drawing less power, right? Some of the inefficiency in the physics of it is literally the density of the silicon. And so there's a lot of people doing great work in material sciences trying to figure out how do we actually reduce the power consumption um, while being able to generate all these extra materials. So, you know, marrying it with where we're at today, I, I've been preaching this now for the last like 90 days everywhere I can get excited about it to the degree that you want to learn, right? Go dive in and start playing with the tools, seeing what they generate and maybe even recognize what is AI, right? Like when Adobe rolled out in Lightroom, Oh, you know, auto masking. Well, that's image segmentation. That is a particular AI model right? Start recognizing where the AI comes from. Anytime it says you have to be online to use a service. Well, the reason for that is because they need the compute to happen at a data center in the cloud so that they don't melt your laptop, right? That's, you know, the, the guys who are the high-end retouchers, they have like an external GPU box and they're using that for when they're doing high-end work. But for the rest of us that are traveling with our laptop, you need that compute to, to happen in the cloud. So yeah, I, I would start there just recognizing you know, what, what is AI and what is not AI. And actually when you start focusing on that, you can start imagining what is coming, coming to which we spoke a little bit about that earlier, as far as like auto tagging and masking and generative, you know, patching, things like that. That's cool. That's cool. And in that podcast with Jesus, you went uh, into a really, I think really inspirational realm where you're talking about, um, 
the use of AI out, you know, we're not talking about photography anymore, the use of AI in, in medicine, the use of AI in uh, engineering. Um, you know, my wife works in finance and we've been talking a lot about the use of AI in finance and her company has come out and said, please do not use chat GPT. Please do not use, <laughs> you know, do not go down these roads right now. We're not ready. And so you being deep inside this, this world, can you tell us what AI is going to be doing for us outside of photography that's so inspirational? Yeah. So, you know, the one story that I'm really proud of at Grok was that when the pandemic was, you know, really early stages happening, um, drug discovery was a big area where they were trying to figure things out for the vaccine. And we were working with a national lab where they told us at that time with the existing GPUs that were on the market, when they would take a drug and try to attach it to a protein and they have a simulator that would tell them what effect would happen between these two compounds and, and this protein that would take them, you know, several days, three and a half days, I think to run that model, you get a result. And then they literally go, okay, what does this drug do to that protein? Three and a half days. Okay. What does this drug compound do? And you're talking about micro adjustments, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. To try to find the one that if you're lucky, you hit something early. And if you're not the, according to the FDA on average, it takes 12 years to bring a drug to market. Right. right? And that's right. why we, worked with them on their particular AI model and it actually, um, could be run in about, you know, seven minutes. Wow. Um, so wow. the acceleration on that for drug discovery is massive. The scientist there that worked on that program, uh, I interviewed him last November and he said, look for this latter stage of my career, my commitment is to run this model again on your technology to try to figure out what drugs can actually cure or basically uh, stop cancer at the stage that it's at. You know, to me, when you talk about generative AI, people are like, ooh, art, advertising, marketing, yay. You know, oh, it'll replace the stock image world. Well, generative AI is going to be trained well enough to a point where pretty soon it's going to start turning into creative AI. Mm-hmm. And that means you can say, hey, if a protein or this molecular element looks like X, what does it look like at each stage if we change a variable like temperatures or drug or whatever, and it generating that image for us to where a human can look at it and go, oh my God, look what it did to the shape. Mm. You know, these scientists that are understanding things around power, that are understanding the physics and the chemistry and the biology of things, that is going to radically accelerate the ability to generate new fuels, like some of the work that's being done um, using algae and the methane gas that it can produce. Mm -hmm. Well, they have to grow that, and they're breeding that, and that's extremely slow as a process. But when you can generate a model that's been trained on how these things grow, mature, and evolve, and say, okay, I want to accelerate that, and probabilistically say, what would the outcome be? That's exciting as hell. You know, we, we worked on one program that was called CFD. It was computational fluid dynamics where it looks at the seabed and says, okay, what is the material underneath the seabed? Right now, there's a company that we know that spends about $13 million a day to take a ship out into the ocean and they're looking for oil or something else, mm -hmm. right? They are collecting that data right now on tape drives. <laughs> and then they literally have that helicoptered back to a mainland they process it all in their models and then they send that data back to the ship and then they say, okay, now go this direction east because we've scanned enough of the surface to say you should probably keep going this way. $13 million a day. Wow. But wow. you could take 
one of our nodes and put it on that ship and they could process that data in real time and every day tell them which way to go. Mm-hmm. Right. And it used to be that you had to process a hundred percent of the data. And this is probably a, a detail people don't understand. Traditionally you would bring data in scans, whatever, and you would process a hundred percent of it. And then you would look at the outcome and say, okay, what do we do from here? What AI actually does in some of those areas is look at chunks of that data. Imagine like looking at every 10th cell in the spreadsheet and looking for a pattern and saying, okay, based on that pattern, probabilistically you should go over here. And then you scan the first few pieces of data in that new direction and say, does that, does that confirm, you know, what it believed to be true? But by able to being able to predict and jump the chunks of data to that degree, you rapidly accelerate discovery. And so for us, I really do believe if you'd asked me 15 years ago, Hey, could we go to Mars? Could we do something on the moon? I'd have been like, you're out of your mind. Like it's it's infrastructure wise. That's ridiculous. The rate at which we see things happening now, it's, it's not science fiction anymore. Right. Right. The problems can be solved quite completely. The challenges are the models big enough and accurate enough. Do we have the compute capacity to be able to do the computational analysis that we need to be able to do? Do we have literally enough electricity mm-hmm. to be able to do that? And so that's that's the exciting and interesting part about all of it. So if we need all the kids to stop making nude pictures using generative <laughs> AI and dedicate that energy to, to making humanity la- last better on this planet, then maybe it's going to work out. That. That's actually the bigger challenge right there. <laughs> that, that might just be the, the big thing. How do you get um, AI to be productive and not wasteful, right? Yes, Absolutely. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. Well, Mark, I, I know we're running out of time here, so I, I want to thank you for your time and especially for your work. I'm totally inspired and incredibly fascinated by this. You know, I think we could definitely have you back at some point and, and talk about this because it's changing so rapidly, right? So Absolutely. we're going to need to update this conversation every few months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying my best to stay on top of it, but it even uh, surprises me every day. One of our engineers sends me something and I'm like, what? Wait, now? Oh, it changed? Okay. So yeah, I mean, if anybody's watching this, you've seen a model that you know gets announced and it's like, oh, chat GPT, you mentioned it with your wife, right? Mm-hmm. To put this in context of the scale that this is changing. So everybody here shopped on Amazon, right? So, you know, when you shop on Amazon and you're looking at that, like latest lens or whatever, of course you would never buy that on Amazon. You shop local, but if you, if you did see that, right. Or a camera strap or whatever, you know, at the bottom, it shows suggested alternatives to get those suggested alternatives in context of what you're looking at. And you as a buyer that it knows your history, it runs 40,000 AI models to do that. Wow. 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 Just to, just to tell me I'm going to like some other things. <laughs> just to like you to tell you, you might like this other thing that's like the thing you were probably already going to buy yeah, yeah. anyway. And I was going to extract more money. So it's well worth the effort. Yep. <laughs> so that wow. only leads me to one more question then. So when does this AI become sentient and take over? I knew, and, I knew that was coming. Where, where do we find the bunkers that they can't reach us? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason I live in Texas. The bunkers are next yeah, to the right. power supplies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's exactly right. Yeah, there's a there's a fascinating debate about the models at Google right now and did it turn sentient or not? You know, it's 
we're a long way away from that. Yeah. I think, you know, I've, I'm certainly a, a neophyte compared to the people that I get to work with who are geniuses and PhDs in this space. And, um, they all assure me that, uh, we're nowhere near being able to have sentient technology. And if, if you think of, uh, how much compute it takes for some influencer tween on TikTok <laughs> to generate makeup, think the amount of electricity it would take for this thing to run as a sentient being. Uh, you pretty much have to black out the Eastern seaboard at yeah, that yeah. point. Right. So I don't think, uh, until I see those people I know smarter than me building bunkers, I'm yeah. in a pretty happy place. <laughs> well, that was fun. Um, <laughs> of course you wouldn't tell us the truth. Thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate this has been a fabulous conversation. I'm definitely going to keep tabs on you. How can we follow you to get more of your perspective? Do you have some social media that you use? What's, what's your, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I'm, I'm fairly transparent and you might see pictures of my kids, my dogs, or my latest views on AI, but it's at life by pixels on all social media. I share all kinds of stuff on there, Photoshop tips and me doing random guitar solos and who knows what else. But, uh, you know, I, I always welcome people sending me questions and, and hitting me up on there. So that's awesome. the best way to find me. Awesome. You truly are a renaissance awesome. man. All right. Well, thank you so much. And um, for those of you listening, you can check out uh, the show notes for this on photocombobulate.com. Click on that episodes button and you'll get to the page where you'll find all of the links to Mark's uh, social media, uh, all the things that we talked about. And of course, you can go back and listen to past episodes just like Mark did. Thank you for doing that. And uh, we will see you down the road because you are definitely somebody that we want to stay in touch with. So thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody. Pleasure.